0: We shall now turn to the Word of God to the chapter read in the Book of Revelation, the chapter eighteen we shall read just now from the beginning of the chapter. And I after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen and is become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful burdened so on. Babylon is fallen is fallen, we have been considering the lead-up to this great and momentous event in the history of men. And it is such an event that it causes great reactions, not just in the earth, but in heaven itself. And in this chapter 18, we have the reaction of those who have been made rich and powerful as a result of their attachment to and involvement with this great city, Babylon. They are crying, for example, verse 10, the kings of the earth, those who are ruling in, among men. They are lamenting because of their connection as we've seen in the past with this great city Babylon. Verse 10, alas, alas, that great city Babylon it's as though we find it impossible to really comprehend it. Babylon seems so impregnable So invincible, Babylon has actually fallen. That mighty city, who can comprehend it? For in one hour is thy judgment come. Then you have the merchants of the earth. In verse 16, they're crying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour so great riches is come to not. Note in the lament, the previous lament, verse 10, for in one hour is thy judgment come. Here again, verse 17, For in one hour so great riches is come to naught. Then we have the cry uh, again in verse 19. Alas, alas, that great city, wherein were made rich all that its ships in the sea, by reason of her costliness, and again note, For in one hour is she made desolate. The emphasis is upon the unexpected suddenness of the fall of Babylon. Babylon is fallen. Now, there were those who expected that can't be. That's impossible. Babylon can't fall. Babylon is just, just so secure, so stable. It can't happen. Now they are amazed not only that it has happened, but that it has happened so suddenly, in one hour. Now, coming into the 21st century, what if they were to announce such an event over the media? What would be the modern expression? it would be spoken of, it would be referred to as the great crash. The great crash. Everything has crashed. Finances have crashed. The economy has crashed. The kings of the earth, the political systems, they've crashed. Now, we might think, well... That's unlikely to happen in the 21st century. Look how clever we are. Look how advanced we are. Look how secure we are. We haven't had a world war now for so many years. We're a stable society. You just imagine. What is the idol And I don't want anyone to take offense thinking I'm referring to anyone in person, because I'm not. But you just think of it. You go to some of the European countries, like Poland and this, and you go down the little streets, the little alleys, what you'll often find fixed into the wall near the door is an idol or an image, the Virgin Mary. Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul, because they're so religious and so bound up with Catholicism. Now, we might think, we don't do things like that. We're enlightened, we're Protestants, we're Bible believers. We don't believe in idolatry. How many of you do what so many others say they can't live without? The idol. They can't. I've heard even Christians say, I couldn't live without it. What is it? My, te- my phone. My phone. My smartphone. Imagine. A piece of technology. It's my smartphone. And I can't go anywhere without it. It's my constant companion. And do you know what they said to the Savior in Luke 24? Did not our hearts burn within us? Has he talked with us, by the way? You imagine how many people... Well, my heart burns when my phone rings. And I get a wonderful conversation because I could never survive without my smartphone. But what is it? It is a piece of modern technology depending on satellites circling round in the heavens. And everyone knows that if anything happens up there, and nations that possess them and own them go to war, that that's eventually what they're going to target. And then what will happen? There will be a crash, all right. And it'll be exactly fulfilling what is depicted here when Babylon falls. You just imagine, everybody's rushing to get money out of the bank, but the machines won't work, the technology won't work. And so they go to the groceries, get their groceries, and they produce their plastic money, and we're very sorry, our technology's broken down. Uh, we can't serve you. The hospitals don't know how to operate. Banks can't operate. Businesses can't operate. Everything's crashing. And what will the great, clever people be saying? Alas, alas. Alas, alas. Why are they saying, alas, alas? Because they can't do anything about it. They're stranded. They can't save the situation. They can't possibly remedy it. All they can do is say, alas, alas, poor us. Look what's happened to us. Now you might think, well, that's a wee bit exaggerated. Maybe it is. But it is not beyond the imagination, that is, and the scientists and the clever people know it. And they know that that can and could possibly happen in the future. But when we come now to the word of God, we need to see something more about the identity, and I seem to have spent some time on the identity of this city, the woman riding the beast, the woman that's sitting upon many waters, upon many peoples, and so on. But this Babylon that is fallen is mysterious Babylon, Babylon, mystery, Babylon the Greek. Now, as we've stressed all along, at the time John was writing this book, Babylon as a city just simply didn't exist. It didn't happen. It wasn't there. And yet John is talking about Babylon falling, and its fall is so real that laments are going right throughout the world regarding it. This is one of the reactions. The other reaction, of course is the reaction of heaven when the saints are to rejoice. Now, you might well think, well, how could Christians rejoice at the fall of a great city and the merchandise and, uh, uh, and the upset of life and, uh, and commerce? How, how could Christians possibly glory in that or be pleased with that, we're told? In verse 20 of chapter 18, Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye holy apostles and prophets, for God hath avenged you of her. Because your relationship with Babylon has been very different to that of the rich and the famous and the powerful and the merchants and so on. While they're lamenting, you are to rejoice the great city Babylon is not just fallen it is thrown down that's the nature of the fall it is thrown down God has thrown this great city down you go back to uh, verse uh, Go back to verse 6. Reward her even as she rewarded you, and double unto her double according to her works. In the cup which she hath filled, filled to her double, and so on. Why is this? Because she has persecuted the church. This is a city that has persecuted Christ, that has persecuted Uh, The people of God, the saints, the prophets of the Lord, the apostles, and so on. And God has cast her down because of his mighty power, or by his mighty power, and shall be found no more. And the voice of harpers and musicians and pipers and so on won't be heard anymore. The situation is completely changed And the suddenness of it, unexpected, incomprehensible, as it were, but it has happened. Now, let's go back, way back to the beginning, as I was saying on Wednesday evening. If we don't grasp and understand the book of Genesis, we won't understand the Bible. It's as simple as that. If we don't understand what God is telling us in the book of Genesis, well, we can forget about the rest of the Bible. Genesis is the key to the great redemptive truths that are unfolded throughout the rest of the Word of God. Now, the first thing that we ought to note is This Babylon that has fallen is ancient Babylon. Now, in the book of the Revelation, it's modern Babylon. It was the Babylon of John's day. Without identifying, I've said it's Rome and we shall come to that. But you see, the spirit of Babylon goes a long, long way back. We need to go back to the book of Genesis, back to chapter 11, and there we see the founding of the great city of Babylon, or Babel as it is in the 11th chapter of Genesis. Now, who was the builder and who was the founder of this ancient Babylon or Babel? You remember what happened when our first parents fell into sin and disobeyed God. There were two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain slew Abel. Now then Eve required, or acquired another son and she said then he was the seed that God had given her. But why was she thinking in terms that she was thinking in? It was because of what God had previously said regarding the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. There would be a continual warfare between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. There would be these two lines flowing through history. Two different seeds. Now we see in the slaying of Abel that in the very first family you see the evidence of these two seeds. and war between them. God accepted the offering of Abel. He rejected the offering of Cain. And in his jealousy, Cain then slew his brother, Abel, because he wasn't accepted of God himself. Now, history progresses until we come to the great flood. The flood of divine judgment. Now, what happens then? Only it come out of that ark. Noah and his family. Now, what would you expect ordinarily will be the result of such a judgment? These people coming out of the ark have been witnesses not only to the mighty power of God ruling over creation, but they have been witnesses to the mighty justice of God that he judges sin. And because the whole earth was corrupt and filled with violence, God sent his judgments. Now, if you'd been a witness to what Noah and his family had witnessed, wouldn't you imagine you would be terrified to sin against God? And that you would be afraid of divine judgment falling again. God, however, made a promise there would be a bow in the sky as the witness that he would not destroy the world again by a flood. But who have come out of the ark? One family. And would you not think, well... If that's the one family that have been sealed, that'll be the end of the two seeds. This is Noah, and he has descended from Seth. This is the family that have descended from Seth. This is the line that have come as the seed of the woman, supposedly. We won't now need to be bothered about this war, it will be at an end now. What we find is that the family of Noah is divided. We have three sons. and They're all equally the sons of Noah. And they are his descendants, no doubt, but While they have all witnessed the same, they've all been saved in the same way by that ark from the judgment of God. They come out of the ark with the natures they were born with. And they come out of the ark with the natures that they exhibit toward sin and toward God. What happens is Noah plants a vineyard. He ends up drunken, and then what is his, his sons? One of his sons Ham mocks his drunken father and laughs at him in his shame. Now, when Noah awakes, what does he do? He curses Ham, or is the descendants of Ham. So you have the three sons of Noah. You have Shem, and you have Jephthah, and you have Ham. Shem, and Jephthah, and Ham. Ham's descendants are cursed by Noah. Now, when we come to chapter 10... Of Genesis, we read of some of these descendants. In uh, verse uh, six of Genesis ten, we read, "And the sons of Ham." These sons of Ham, Cush, is one of them. Then we read verse seven, "And the sons of Cush who are following." The line of Ham. Verse it? Cush begat Nimrod. Were are still following the line of Ham. And Nimrod began to be a mighty one in the earth. He begins to be a mighty one. As he begins, so he progresses. And he becomes recognized in his time, in his generation, as one of the earth's great men. In, it is probably true, there was none greater at the time. But what does he do? He was a mighty hunter before... The Lord. Now that does not mean that He hunted animals. He may well have done. But it means He hunted men. He subdued men. He captured men. He enslaved men. And wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord, What did he do? He begins to become mighty. He hunts men. He controls men. What do we read? Verse 10, as evidence of his ability to hunt men and subdue men and enslave men and the beginning of his kingdom. He's now empowered to control men. He is the first king of whom we read. His is the first kingdom of which we read. The beginning of his kingdom. And note those words. The beginning of his kingdom. Not his kingdom... But the beginning of his kingdom, this is just the start of it, we've just been introduced to it. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. That didn't, as it were, exhibit the full extent of his kingdom. It's just the beginning of it the beginning of his kingdom. He has set up a kingdom that is going to increase, it's going to expand, it's going to extend, and the spirit with which he has built the kingdom is going to continue from generation to generation. So that by the time we come to Revelation, and they're saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. We have to thank this man Nimrod for the beginning of that kingdom. That's where it all began. Now you go to chapter 11. and What does uh, this man Nimrod do When he sets up the beginning of his kingdom, we're told that the name of the city or the great tower that he wants to build to keep his kingdom together, verse 1 of chapter 11, the whole earth was of one language and one speech. So it was, in a sense, easy for Nimrod to control it. All of one language, one speech. Everybody understood what Nimrod was about. When he gave laws, when he made commandments, everyone knew what they were. He knew how to control them, and they submitted to his control. We're told that they're of a mind to build this great tower that would reach to heaven. Let us build, verse 4 of chapter 11, as a city and a tower. Now, very often, even in little children's books about matters in relation to the Bible, the concentration is always in the Tower of Babel. That's all ever you see. This great tower, whatever way they try to depict it, that's it. But it wasn't just a tower they were building. Let us make brick and burn them thoroughly and they had brick for stone and slime had they for mortar. And they said, go to, let us build us a city and a tower. Now, Why did they build towers in a city? It was usually not just to make an impression on any enemies approaching the city, but it was often as a defense of the city. Now, the idea very often in minds is this Tower of Babel. It was built away up into the clouds somewhere because men thought they could climb to heaven by their own works and their own methods and they could reach God by going up this great tower. But you see what we have before us is the intention we're going to build a city and we're going to secure it and we're going to establish it, and we are going to make a name for ourselves. Make us a name. That's what it's all about. Isn't it glorify God? It isn't even to reach heaven, as it were. There's no mention of that, as uh, as though they're going to earn salvation by their own works. We are going to make a name for us. We're going to exalt man. That's what it's all about. This city is the city of man. It's going to exalt man. It's going to elevate man. It's going to show the ability of man, the gifts of man, the wisdom of man. That's what it's all going to be about. Let us build as a house top may reach unto heaven. Now, in the day and age in which we're living, I haven't been to the tops of the highest buildings in the world. I was at one point, but that has all changed. I remember years ago going in Chicago, being in the top of the great tower there, but others have now gone even higher why do the great cities of the earth build these great towers? To show their riches, their wealth, their ability, the technology they can make use of to make us a A One city tries to outdo the other if the United States has the highest tower in the world, well, some other nation, some Arab nation, has got re- riches and wealth, we're going to build one even higher, and on it goes to make us an E. The kingdom of Nimrod was the city, the uh, 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 the city and the tower was the city of man. It was all about glorifying man, exalting man, settling man, keeping man united together. But, what did the Lord do? The Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do. This is just the beginning. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. And God is recognizing this city is built by the imagination of man. He has imagined it. He has imagined it for a purpose, for a good reason as far as he's concerned. And that same imagination is going to live on. And if I do not interfere with that imagination, there's no knowing where it is going to take man. So God creates a problem. And we find the Lord scattered them abroad From thence upon the face of the earth. And they left off to build the city. Doesn't say they left off to build the tower. Don't you see these depictions. A half built tower. Or a crumbling tower. But they left off to build the city. And. And therefore the name of it is called Babel because the Lord did there confine the language of all the earth and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of the earth but when they were scattered abroad upon the face of the earth what did they take with them they took their imagination God scattered them but they took with them the same imagination that they had to build this city and this great tower that would reach to heaven so that we will make a name for ourselves and there they go scattering through the earth Still with this in their hearts, we will make a name for ourselves. That's the spirit with which they go through the air scattered by God. Now we see, throughout the Old Testament, we leave behind the beginnings of this city, the beginnings of this kingdom, But the spirit of Nimrod, the spirit of Cush, the spirit of Ham, mocking his father, breaking the law of God instead of obeying God's law that was written in the heart of man, thou shalt honor thy father and thy mother, he laughed. And he mocked at his father. Now that line continues now spread out across the world of that day. So that by the time we come in history to the great Babylon that we discover in the book of Daniel, if you go with me over to the book of Daniel to the fourth chapter you have there the statement made uh, by the great king Nebuchadnezzar oh Nimrod is long gone they've left, left off building the city and the tower long long ago but look at what we have now in the book of Daniel and the fourth chapter in verse 30. We may read verse 28. All this came upon the king Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of twelve months, he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. Man, it is different to what it was in Nimrod's day. It was just the small beginning. But here, what do we read? As he walks in his palace in the kingdom of Babylon, verse 30, the king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power? And for the honor of my majesty, I have made a name for myself. I have built Nimrod Field, but I've succeeded. He began his little scheme. It failed. God interrupted his scheme. But here's the mighty, great Babylon that I have built, I've succeeded, and I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power. There's no mention of God. It's all me. I have made a name for myself. Now that Babylon, historic Babylon... What was it responsible for? When God's covenant people, the children of Abraham, when they sinned against God, when they broke covenant with God, when they rebelled and turned to idolatry, what was the instrument that God used to afflict his people, to punish them for their sins, and to bring them to repentance It was mighty Babylon. Now in Revelation, we're reading, Babylon is falling, it is crashed, it is cast down in one hour, very sudden. Go now over to chapter 5 of Daniel, and what happens now? God humbled the great Nebuchadnezzar. But then we have Belshazzar mentioned as king. He's ruling now the great Babylon. And he is ruling the city of man. He is now over the great empire that has taken the people of God into bondage and into servitude. And what do we read in chapter 5, verse 1? Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. That was ordinary life in Babylon at the time. That was the kind of culture and that was the kind of society that Daniel and the three Hebrew children, the captives, were taken into. Here is Belshazzar. And he has a great feast for a thousand of his lords. And they drank wine before the thousand. They were all congratulating one another toasting one another as they drank. Belsh, Belshazzar, wiles, he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes, his wives, And his concubines might drink therein. Now what was important about all these vessels? They were devoted to God. They were not created for everyday service. They were devoted to God. Holiness unto the Lord was stamped upon them. But here is this drunken king after he's been drinking, after he's tasted the wine and it has had an impact upon him, what does he do? Let's bring what belongs to God and let's desecrate it. Let's take the cups and the articles that belong to the house of God that were devoted to God entirely for his service. Let's drink out of them and praise our gods. That's, they brought, in verse 3, the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God. The house that the glory of God had filled in the days of Solomon which was at Jerusalem. And the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines drank in them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood and of stone. It was a night of debauchery and blasphemy, and, as it were, degrading Israel's God as they boasted in their false gods. Belshazzar felt so confident, so secure, he can mock heaven. He can mock the God of the Hebrews. He is no fear. Whatever. But, what do we read? A hand appeared with a message. And when we come to the end of chapter, thir- uh, chapter 5, verse 30, we read this. In that night was Belshazzar the king of the Chaldeans, slain. Darius the Median took the kingdom, being about three score and two years old. Suddenly, Babylon is fallen. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar is saying, is not this great Babylon that I have built I have made a name for myself. Everyone thinks of Babylon, they think of Nebuchadnezzar. Everyone that visits Babylon, they praise Nebuchadnezzar. Everyone who looks at the architecture and the marvels of Babylon, the great wonder of Babylon, the hanging gardens and so on, they all praise Man, they don't praise God, they all praise man, Nebuchadnezzar. What did God say about Belshazzar? Because he knew what Nebuchadnezzar had said. And he knew how God had dealt with Nebuchadnezzar, humbling him, driving him out from among men into the field is a beast and so on when he returns he's of a different mind and he recognizes there's only one God and it's the God of the Hebrews that's not the mind of Belshazzar and in the night in the midst of their merriment they're mocking God Defiling the cups out of the house of God and so on. Praising the gods that are not gods at all. The CMR verse 5 of chapter 5, Daniel came forth fingers of a man's hand and the message is obviously not understood but it is disturbing. Daniel is called in to interpret it, and he does. And what has he to say by way of interpreting? He says, verse 18 of chapter 5: 5, O thou king, the most high God, give Nebuchadnezzar thy father a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. And for the majesty that he gave him, all people, nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would he slew, whom he would he kept alive, whom he would he set up, and whom he would he put down. What a power he possesses. Supreme, sovereign, it seems, omnipotent power. No one can Ever overruled the mighty Nebuchadnezzar or question his power, but when his heart was lifted up, God dealt with him and then, when we come to verse twenty two of Daniel five, what does Daniel say to Belshazzar, and thou his son O Belshazzar, hast not humbled Thine heart, thou hast not humbled, thine heart. God saw the pride in the heart of Belshazzar. As God said to Samuel when he was looking at the sons of Jesse for a future king, man looketh on the outward appearance, but God looketh on the heart And God said through Daniel, O Belshazzar, thou hast not humble thine heart, though thou knewest all this. You knew what God did. You learned what God hates. You learned that God will not allow men to glory in men. And yet, verse 23, Thou hast lifted up thyself against the Lord of heaven. What a foolish character. Now this is the spirit of Babylon still living, the spirit of Cush. The spirit of Ham, the spirit of Cush, the spirit of Nimrod, the spirit of Nebuchadnezzar, it's still living right through. Thou hast lifted up thyself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before thee, And thou and thy lords and thy wives and thy concubines have drunk wine in them. And thou hast praised the gods of uh, silver and of gold and brass iron, wood, stone, which see not, nor hear, nor know. And the God in whose hand thy breath is and whose are all thy ways thou hast not glorified. Then... This is the message that he sent to you, Belshazzar, in your pride and in your arrogance. Meeny, meeny, teekle, you pharisee. And then as Daniel interprets it, what happens? Verse 30, in that night was Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, slain. And Darius the Median took the kingdom being about three score and two years old. He took the kingdom. He took it over. It's still the mighty Babylon. But he has taken it over now. It's not as though Babylon perishes. It's not as though he goes in with great Engines of war and demolishes the walls of the great city. The walls of Babylon were so wide that you could raise two chariots one past the other. That's the the width of the walls. It was such an impregnable city that they thought there's no possible way that anyone can bring Babylon down. But what did Cyrus do? He took his army. And under the cover of darkness, they diverted the river. The great river Euphrates, they diverted it. And thus the army went in under the cover of night. And Belshazzar is drunken. His lords are not prepared for any warfare. They're never expecting the downfall. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. In that sense. But the spirit of Babylon lives on to such an extent that when we come to the New Testament, we have Babylon identified in another way. You've already, I trust, you remember the Passages we refer to in Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, where Babylon is fallen and is cast down as a mighty stone into the sea. Jeremiah, for example, was to write a letter and tie it in a stone and throw it into the river Euphrates and as he did, thus Babylon is cast down and shall be no more. When we come to the New Testament, and when we come to Revelation, Babylon appears again. That is why we have mystery Babylon. Because Babylon appears in a new guise. The kingdom that Nimrod began still survives the spirit with which he began that kingdom. The spirit that motivated the mighty Nebuchadnezzar and that activated Belshazzar, that spirit still lives on. Now, we've mentioned it before, but let's just refer to it once again in the first epistle that Peter writes in chapter 5 of his first epistle. It is interesting to see the greeting that he sends at the end of this epistle. Chapter 5 of First Peter, verse 13, the church... That is at Babylon. Elected together with you, saluteth you, and so doth Marcus my son, and so on. The church that is at Babylon. Now we could get a map out, and we could go, well, can we find the church at Ephesus? Yes. Can we find Corinth? Yes. Can we discover Galatia? Yes, we can. But where is Babylon? Where's the city of Babylon? Where can the church be in Babylon? Now it is a well established fact, it seems, that Peter actually was writing this epistle from Jerusalem. And you see, Peter always related not with Rome, but with Jerusalem. When Paul went in Galatians, it's recorded, He went up to Jerusalem to see them that were pillars in the church. Peter is one of them. To see that his gospel that he was preaching was orthodox and sound. And there was no difference between them. But when we come to the book of the Revelation, we have a description given of another city... There's only two great cities, by the way, right throughout the whole of the New Testament. There are other cities mentioned like Nineveh and, and, and so on. But the two great cities are Jerusalem and Babylon. You always find those are the two great cities that God is dealing with and refers particularly to over and over again, Jerusalem and Babylon. In the Book of the Revelation, in the chapter uh, eleven, you have Jerusalem referred to in the most derogatory, debased way. Chapter eleven of Revelation, the dead bodies of the witnesses, they lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where our Lord was crucified. Called Jerusalem, literally. But called Sodom and Egypt, spiritually. Because the spirit of Sodom, and the spirit of Egypt, is now found in Jerusalem, where the Lord is crucified, and the spirit of Ham, and the spirit of Cush, and the spirit of Nimrod, and the spirit of Nebuchadnezzar, and the spirit of Belshazzar lives on to persecute, to crucify the Son of God, and then to persecute the apostles and the saints, to defile spiritually the worship of God and the house of God. And you find the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the aristocracy, the Pharisees, were more legalistic and uh, more religious whereas the sadducées were much more political and then you have the scribes then you have the herodians and all the other bodies but now we come to find that the ancient lasting living spirit of babylon is now in jerusalem Now, we shall have to look at that. So much so, and it's something that is sadly overlooked. Jesus had this to say in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 23. You know, we shall come to it. But historians, and even Bible believers, when you mention The persecution of the church. Rome. The great arenas where the Christians were thrown to the lions. Where they were burned. Where Nero covered them in pitch and lit his gardens up for his great feast with the burning Christians of his day. All that is true. What did Jesus say? Matthew 23 verse 34. Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them ye shall scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city. Why? That upon you, not Rome, but upon you may come, listen, all the righteous blood shed where? Upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, Son of Barachias, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. O the merchants and the kings and the great men are saying... Alas, alas, Babylon. What does Jesus say? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The guilt that is upon you. You have slaughtered my prophets. You have destroyed my servants. And worst of all, you will crucify the Lord of glory the spirit of Babylon is now in Jerusalem. And the church suffers, persecuting the apostle Paul and Peter and James and all the other saints. When we come to the book of the Revelation, that's the state that Jerusalem is in. But, as I said last week, Rome becomes the new Jerusalem the spirit that has infiltrated Jerusalem now progresses to Rome. And instead of Jerusalem being where the council meets, Rome is where the councils of the papacy meet. And everything changes. Rome is the great Babylon, particularly that John is talking about. The interesting thing is that we read Babylon is fallen, is fallen. shall be no more. But there's a new Jerusalem. There'll be no new Babylon. But there will be a new Jerusalem. And when we come to it, that will be the great marvel. No more Babylon. But a new Jerusalem, the great city of Babylon has perished. The new Jerusalem and all its glory will appear from heaven itself. Time is gone. We better leave it there. May the Lord bless his word. Let us pray. Most holy and eternal God, we rejoice that as history progresses, God's great plan of redemption unfolds. And we rejoice that there was one who came in the fullness of time to destroy the works of the devil. And we praise thy name that thou hast a plan and a purpose to save thy people, to exalt thy church, to keep thy covenant, to glorify thy name, enable us then to look to thee to love thy word with all that it tells us. Hear us now, pardon us, accept us. For Christ's sake, amen.